Yes, hello, the time is 2 p.m. I'm Theo Hunt, you're listening to Newspeak, the best political discussion show on 87.7 Bellwig FM. Newspeak is freedom of speech going live as we debate the big issues of the past week. And this week we've got two amazing guests with us. We have a third year politics and economics student and treasurer of the Lancaster University Conservative Society, Daniel Trafford, and politics with Chinese students, second year student, James Hunt. Guys, how are you both doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm doing I'm doing very well as well. Thank you for asking. Uh, good, good. But yeah, lovely to have you both on. There's a lot to talk about from the past week, and we'll start with our main kind of news roundups. Um, we're moving on to our first discussion topic. We'll then have the alternative news roundup and our final two debates. All the information, the headlines, is provided with the help of BBC, Reuters, and the Week. So what's been in the headlines the past week? Well, here are the big stories. In the UK, it's been a bad week regarding COVID-19. On Tuesday, the number of deaths, the death toll from COVID reached over 100,000, with Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, accepting full responsibility for those lives lost. Scientists have also criticised the government's legacy of poor decisions at the start of the pandemic and around lockdowns, while Labour has accused the government of monumental mistakes. Uh, Robert Jenrick, the government community secretary, has defended the government, saying it took the right decisions at the right time. Concerns have also been raised over the presence of the South African COVID variant, one of a handful of new mutations on the original COVID strain, which Patrick Valance, the government's chief scientific officer, has warned might have certain features, which means they may be less susceptible to vaccines. However, much is still unknown on this issue. In America, President Joe Biden has taken office and started unveiling his immediate plans. They include everything from executive orders on LGBT plus rights and climate change to new ethics rules for federal employees to major legislative pushes on COVID-19 and immigration. He's also rejoined the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Agreement. President Biden has pledged to start by keeping the promises I made to the American people. However, there has already been pushback on his economic stimulus bill. In China, rescue workers managed to begin evacuations of a group of miners who have been trapped underground in Shandong province in eastern China. The 22 miners have been blocked in since the tunnel entrance collapsed on the 10th of January. The rescue project has been quicker than anticipated, however there has been no contact with another group of miners trapped deeper in the mine. So that was the news roundup. We move on to our first debate now. In Australia, Google has threatened to cease operations after the Australian government's attempt to acquire it and other tech companies to share royalties with news publishers. If passed, this law will be a world first, but the US tech giants are resisting strongly, describing it as causing unmanageable and financial and operational risk, while Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said he will not be influenced by threats. This comes on top of social media firms blocking President Trump from their platforms, accusing him of inciting violence in the Capitol riot on 6th January. The group of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple and Microsoft are colloquially called Big Tech and the label can also be extended to social media firms generally. James, this obviously raises a whole host of questions on the regulation of Big Tech. The largest one is this. Why should governments regulate tech firms more than they currently are? Or why, why not? Hi Theo, yeah. Um, I think I th- I'm, I'm of the opinion that big tech does need to be to some degree regulated. Um, I'm no expert on public policy, uh, still studying on that. But um, well, you've, let me try and c- compose my thoughts a bit. Um, no worries, no worries. Big tech, the big big tech firms in various in various sectors they they have a lot of market power. They have monopolies, duopolies, oligopolies, um, and like for example, search engines, um, Google. Um, 
occupies the the realm of search um, occupies the market of, of, for search engines pretty um, pretty um, you know they, they, they've got they've got they've got quite a lot of power there um, yeah sure you know and like just base basic basic uh, sort of theory on um, on markets innovation um, and capitalism is that you need you need some degree of competition for um, innovation for the for the fruits of the um, uh, the, prof- the, the profits for the fruits of the business to be reinvested back into the markets, um, back into and, and, and having a better, um, better result for people, um, for consumers. You know, if if, if you yeah, just just principally, uh, it's not a particularly well analyzed point, but yeah, just principally, uh, if you've got such such controlling power um, in all these in all these sectors, um, that that gives that gives all these firms, Facebook, Google, uh, a lot of control. Over a lot, a lot of control and not a lot of incentive to um, uh, to to innovate um, and improve improve their situation. They've, there's you know if, if if you're there's no there's no there's, there's quite a lot of um, there's quite a big barrier to entry. If you if you're if you you can't just set up a small uh, a small firm. Um, very easily uh, to, like for example, a social media firm. You can't, you can't. You know, there, obviously, there are there are plenty of uh, alternative social media sites, but it's very difficult to start a new one up and just and get, get masses of people to join your platform. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the government as 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 that um, in, that that intervening um, feature, which is a, 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 a intervening player, which is accountable to the people through votes. Um, yeah, principally, I'd, I'd say they have to be. Um, they have to be involved to some degree. Okay, so you're saying it damages free competition, open markets, because the tech firms have too much power, and you're saying that they have monopoly in most markets. Daniel, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a very interesting issue, actually, because I'm a strong believer in the uh, freedom of the private sector, but I also think that um, I'm a well, I'm a strong believer in the freedom of speech. And having a look into this, I think it would be really good if we treated these big tech firms, which have a large monopoly in the digital sphere. Now, now bear in mind, the digital sphere is a huge marketplace for free speech now, because a lot of people are using social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and as we've seen with President Trump, uh, if you're banned from Twitter, you're also banned from Facebook and other platforms. And that's really concerning because um, agree or disagree with President Trump, um, that's a platform that he used to get out to, his, um, to talk to his voters. So I really think that we should be taking a stance of how we somehow treat broadcasters in the um, United Kingdom um, using... Um, um, bodies such as Ofcom. So the Communications Act of uh, 2003, um, within, that, within that act, there's a clause that ensures due impartiality on the broadcaster's part. And I think this just should be something that should be passed along to the tech, um, tech sector. I, I, do not, I want to stress, I don't want to treat tech firms like um, publishers, because that would make them liable for any online post that's... Um, Delivered, and that would be kind of like Article 13 of the EU proposed, which was a ridiculous kind of um, kind of legislation, colloquially known as the meme ban, uh, back in uh, back back a few years ago. Um, but something in a way which we can regulate uh, the, the due impartiality of the big tech firms, so we allow a, like a marketplace of ideas in the in on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, um, but without you know making them liable for those posts, which um, can lead to dangerous loopholes as well. Okay, so there's kind of a concerns over um, the 
what, what is because one of the questions here is what is the status of these firms? Are they news publishers? Are they forums for networking, communicating? Uh, are they trying to do too much, and that's confusing their responsibilities? And 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 James, I'm going to take this to you. Do, do you think you you're kind of moving in this direction by saying the firms are locking up the free market? Are you saying that we should actually um, some some ideas have been floated around of breaking them up that they're monopolies that they should be broken down to constituent parts instead of sprawling across various different industries as they currently are? Would that be a view you agree with? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> um, like I say, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm quite qualified to to talk about how feasible that would be because uh, obviously you're talking about some pretty pretty huge stuff. And the thing about big tech is that. Um, unlike unlike so many other uh, so many other firms and uh, markets and industries um, which have gone through some form of antitrust uh, legislation, big tech is involved in a lot of intangible stuff. There's no it's no it's not they, they don't they, it's not so much the production of a you know of physical goods obviously, um, and 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 so so you you, you that, that poses unique diff, that unique difficulties uh, for how you regulate them and how you break them up. Uh, I know in America, um, Amy Klobuchar, who was uh, a senator from Minnesota, who um, I, I know ran for president, uh, ran for the Democratic nomination uh, through 2019 before dropping out. She um, she's been trying to table some uh, legislation, um, which uh, has is antitrust legislation with a focus on big tech. I'm not there's not a lot of information out there just yet on, on how on how that's planned to be done, um, but there is a certain. There is a, a certain degree of dissatisfaction with big tech among both Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. for different reasons, though. Um, and of course, you know, you do have these, this problem of the internet is so hard to control um, that, of course, as, as as a lot of Republican people have shown, uh, Republican members have shown, is that if you do attempt to um, uh, regulate and silence people on um, on the main on the main social media websites. Um, they they will create their own ones. So, for example, Parler, I believe, is a, a Twitter alternative that um, a lot of Republican um, and I think also um, some you know other 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 right wing um, uh, politicians and, and and figures from around the world have uh, latched onto um, as an unregulated uh, space where they can say their views about being regulated. So, you know, people will if you if you if you do start to regulate. Um, on the on the free speech and certain in certain in these in these big centers and these alternate ones which I mentioned these alternate sites they they can they they, they can have their niche as being um, as being a a place where um, yeah as, as as specifically as alternatives um, I think I think I think Daniel's idea of the of um, um, you know I don't know how he phrased it much but I can but I can is 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 very interesting um sort of sort of running out of of, of um, yeah so, so I've, got, I've got to say on the customer mind i'm not sure how to vocalize it you know what i mean no that's right so um, we've got a kind of consensus here that that the firm should be broken up whether for economic lib economic competition or in the interest of regulating free speech and and, and james you mentioned klobuchar's bill in in the Senate. One of the concerns that, that I would have, though, that, that you might be worth considering is, in the past few years, there's been no serious attempt across the Western world, certainly, in a kind of meaningful, um, in a meaningful way, to regulate freedom of speech online. So why shouldn't 
the big tech firms seek to regulate it themselves, especially when they're accusing a, a leading public figure in the form of the President Trump of inciting an act of violence. Should 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 you not by signing a contract agreeing by the terms of that site be bound by the terms of that site which is a private company especially when no one else is interfering in the public sphere to regulate daniel yes uh, i think again um as i raised earlier it's a very 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 difficult issue because um with big tech um they tend to have as i say a large monopoly over a certain sector of the digital sphere so if you're banned from twitter like president trump was he's also banned from facebook and other social media outlets and it's very different to say when you go down to the corner shop or if you go to a certain pub, um, if you go to a pub and um, the um, local barman, he, he, um, he offends you, then you can go to another pub just down the street. It's very easy there because it's a, it's a competitive market. But in the, in the tech sphere, it's very, very, very different because what you have is a, a large um, firm controlling a, a large sphere of digital influence. And if you're banned from that site, it's very hard to actually boycott it because you get a lot of their revenue from ad generation anyway. And a lot of people still need to use social media for um, from communication purposes. So, again, it, I, I think like, we, like I said earlier, it is very important that we have at least some um, regulation in the form of ensuring that big tech firms... Um, commit to due impartiality while um, monitoring social media because I think it's very important that we have freedom of speech and freedom of discourse Uh, it's one of the most important things that we can have in a democracy and because big tech is such a monopoly monopolies are not coherent with the free market so there needs to be some regulations within the in the form of what I just mentioned earlier Okay, what 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 would be regulated? Yeah, what would be on so you see something on social media that let's say it's inciting violence because the foundation to democracy is laid out by John Stuart Mill's harm principle is you should be able to do whatever you want until it starts har- directly harming someone else. Okay, so if you see someone say on social media, um, I'm going to go and kill a specific individual that you know is quite an extreme example, but we'll use it for now. I'm going to go and kill, harm a specific individual. You think they might. I actually do it. They're not just empty words. What 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 should then happen? Should the, is it on the social media companies to to intervene? Well, yes. I mean, the, sorry. So, yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so the, the the harm principle yes, is all about if uh, someone is um, feels threatened by an act of violence, and then um, they can that is a again a violation of the harm principle. Um, but I I do think if someone is generally directing a threat at someone else. And that's a different story. That then becomes a criminal offence. I think if you if you go down the street to someone and say something like, oh, "I agree with President Donald Trump's policy to build a border wall," um, or, that's not an incitement of freedom. That's not an incitement of violence. That's just saying you agree with Donald Trump. Um, an incitement of violence would be going down the street and saying to someone, "I'm going to get a bottle of lager and smack it over your head." That that would be an incitement of violence, and that would not be acceptable in person, and it shouldn't be acceptable online. Um, and what I mean by due impartiality is that we ensure you know, the freedom of speech up to the point of inciting violence. And that's coherent with any you know, marketplace of ideas and John Stuart Mill's idea about the, uh, the harm principle. OK, and I appreciate the correction on the harm principle. Your, your political philosophy is clearly better than mine. Um, I'm going to go to James just a second. If you have any thoughts on what we've been talking about, message if you have my details feel free to message me or text into the studio and i'm going to read the number now 01524 that's 01524 566 549 so that's 01524 566 
549. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you could attach your name as well, please, um, and if they're appropriate, we'll read them out. But, but so bouncing off of what uh, Dan's been saying on freedom of speech and how it should reflect common discourse we have in our day-to-day lives, James, how much do you agree with that reflection of, of what speech should be monitored? Yeah, um, hard one, obviously. You've got, you know, what... what 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 classes as I think it's, I'll, I'll latch onto this idea. I, I think Daniel mentioned this: the, the idea of a free free marketplace of ideas. I mean, he mentioned something to that effect. Um, I think you have to wonder. I think you have to, I have to question to what extent um, just purely free speech results in a in a, in a in a free marketplace of ideas because um, you. I, I, I personally argue that a free marketplace of ideas only truly um, ends up being um, manif- manifesting in like an academic community where um, uh, information is peer reviewed, uh, sourced, um, evidence well, and you know, and, and, and argued back and forth. Um, I think in the in the world of journalism and just common discussion of people, although I think that's absolutely an important part of society that you you, yeah, you can discuss on social media. Oftentimes, um, you have arguments between people who would who are never going to agree with each other. Not in a million years, they are. They have already decided what they what they believe, um, and they end up ranting each other um, in comment sections. Um, and I, I know because I used to be one of these people before I realised how completely futile this is. Um, I'm glad you. I'm glad you came to your senses. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, I mean, it's a question of maturity. But anyway. Um, you know, you, I, I, I think that it's, even in the world of journalism, there is a, there is a, um, and especially in social media, it's a profit incentive sometimes, and also just an incentive in terms of uh, attention um, to sometimes be um, to not, not, not perhaps tell the whole truth, to be uh, controversial for the sake of it. Um, so, in, in terms of, in terms of, I'm trying to get back to the point. In terms of uh, the impacts of free discourse in society. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's a you, tricky you, one to nail down, isn't it? It is you, a tricky one. With a lot uh, of this, 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 role, this, this question of whether a, a, a tech firm should be a publisher or um, a, a seen as a publisher or a platform, um, I think the, the, the Australian bill you mentioned, I think moves some way to... Um, Putting putting more of the onus on the on the on the on the on the uh, social media company as a as a as, as a um, publisher to some extent, um, and there there is concern. I think it's another problem of like like I said, the intangible nature of it. There's a, there's a concern of what where do you draw the line of of what, of when how long it has to something has to be illicit content has to be up on the on online on your on your platform before you suddenly become responsible for, responsible for that content. Um, so I mean, I, I think there's now. I think I think previously, um, over the past few years, a lot of lawmakers have been um, somewhat um, pleased, please, or, or or maybe perhaps in awe with the ability of big techs, uh, of these big tech companies' ability to uh, connect people, um, uh, to to enable um, small small traders, um, you know, e-commerce, that sort of stuff. Um, but of course. You know, with, with with multiple scandals, you've got the Australia. I think I think the event kicking off the uh, the, the the bill in Australia might have been the uh, Christchurch um, mosque shooting um, about a year ago, uh, and and how the fact that so many videos of it were were, were up online on social media sites for so long. 
um, the negative the negative impacts are starting to be shown more and more. And there is a growing um, there is a growing sentiment that something should be done. I think amongst people. So I, I do think in the future you are going to see uh, you are going to see some attempts at least to regulate big tech firms, even if it hasn't been really um, attempted so far. So we've kind of got two different views of how free speech operates here. So, so Daniel's saying it's in the marketplace of ideas on social media, and you've got kind of the, um, it, it, we should allow wide free speech up to the point where it's causing violence, where James is saying actually um, discussion online doesn't reflect reality. And and those no, I, mean, I, I, I do I, I just to clarify, I'm not I'm not I'm not arguing in ter- in terms of um, that, sh- that that we shouldn't be allowing more. Uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't be uh, allowing free speech up to the point of violence. I think I think violence is the incitement of violence, especially including uh, not just violence uh, personally, but also incitement of violence. Is obviously the capital riot situation is a, uh, um, a uh, you know pertinent there. But I mean I, I'm I'm just saying that um, you have to. I, I think there, there is a limitation on the value of free speech over 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 social media already. I think that is to some degree not as useful as we might think. Okay, um, and, and those are kind of two, yeah, and I slightly misrepresented Daniel's position, not up to violence, don't want to say <laughs> Daniel's endorsing um, violence, but, but to a larger extent, whereas there is kind of an increasing view that actually discussion on social media doesn't really reflect reality, and we're seeing that with, with perhaps with echo chambers, and the idea that you have algorithms that are shaping what you see and what you perceive, so that you can have two completely different facts, stories of the exact same event. And, and James, you raised an interesting subpoint there, and I want to move the discussion onto this because I think we could go round the free speech roundabout for, for, for years. Um, but you mentioned kind of the value of you have communities, you have small businesses. Facebook would say it plays an instrumental role in connecting small, medium businesses to customers directly. Um, advertising on Facebook is cheap, it's specific, it's easy to get in touch with customers. Um, enabling information sharing, uh, road WhatsApp group, these are all things that come at the benefit of uh, Facebook and it's a sort of social media. You have platforms um, like Reddit and Instagram and Twitter where you have massive sharing of ideas and information to like-minded communities. Do not the benefits, I'm going to go to Daniel with this if that's okay, do not the benefits of those outweigh the costs. Should we try, in breaking these companies up, we'd be breaking up these communities, these benefits. Is that worth it? Well, I'm, I'm not advocating um, breaking up Twitter into multiple sub-companies um, or breaking up Facebook into multiple sub-companies. Um, I think the real issue is, is and why there's not been much movement on regulation, is because you have to find the correct regulation. So, for example, the EU a few years back, when I mentioned earlier, proposed Article 13, which was kind of a copyright law, which was, as we said, colloquially known as the meme ban, because it would make... Um, um, it would treat these tech firms as publishers, so they would be liable for everything that's posted on their um, their websites, and that'll be a, a burden for them. I'm not advocating that at all. I'm advocating for a system in which we um, ensure that the big tech firms subscribe to due impartiality, similar to the um, Communications Act of 2003, which is used for broadcasters, but not to the extent where they're held liable for every individual's posts. Um, Coming to your point about the, uh, the the benefits of social media, um, I, I would never, ever knock the benefits of social media. I think, um, aside around the issue of free speech on Twitter and some caveats there, I think um, social media has been entirely a force for good in society. I think it's helped, especially in a time of a global pandemic, when people are having to stay at home. 
um, it's a way for people to stay in touch. It's a way for businesses, small businesses, to get their to get their ideas out there, to get their ads out there. They can target their ads. It's just a whole new sphere of communication. And I mean, I, I even read in, in during the full lockdown and um, communication on social media. So actually, you know, messaging between people actually improve people's mental health because without that. There'd be no direct communication with people. Some people living alone and isolated. So I think it's a, it's a really, really, really good thing. It just needs that extra little tweaking, I think. The right tweaking, which I think we've been getting wrong. I think the EU's been getting wrong. I think Australia's been getting a bit wrong. It needs to be about the due impartiality of the big tech firms, not about holding them liable for whatever someone posts online, because that that would cause a messy situation, not be and no and you know just not be an ideal situation. Okay, and. Um... James, how much would you agree with, with that image of social media as being beneficial, strongly beneficial, and just needing a few tweaks? I'd have to take a slightly more pessimistic view on things. Uh, I think there are, there are significant issues that have come with social media, and I'll, and I'll get onto that in a, in a second. But I think, like, I do agree that it, 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 my, my reasoning would be that, like any other technology which has significantly impacted our lives, right? You know, cars, um, various types of automation. It's not, you know, it, you're not. In a, we're not now in a situation after those developments have taken place to say, "Oh, we need to go back." I don't think anybody really wants to get rid of the smartphones, wants to get rid of social media. You know, like in the same way, you wouldn't want to get rid of your cars. You know, one, there, 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 you know, there are issues which have come with, uh, mo- you know, pretty much any technological development in society that changes society um, greatly. And I think perhaps to get a little philosophical, um, part of the human condition, maybe just trying to, uh, maybe our, our, our um, our drive to find ways to deal with um, negative impacts of the technologies we have developed to make our lives easier. Um, but I mean, uh, um, yeah. So I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take. Um, I, yeah, there obviously there are clear benefits to social media, um, and the, you know why? Just the reason why they've taken off, why they've been created. Um, but you know, there are there obviously are. Um, Problems like social media, for example, there's um, you know the fear of missing out, the FOMO. Um, it's, it, it's, it's had impact on cyberbullying. Um, you've had um, it, it can it can. I think I think I know, I'm not sure. I haven't got studies in front of me, but um, you know there are there are, there is evidence I believe in terms of the um, in terms of uh, its effect on uh, on depression in some cases. Um, so I mean, but but of course. On the flip side of that is, as Daniel mentioned, like that in certain situations, that the the, the ability to to be connected so instantly, um, so instantly with people in terms of the COVID pandemic, for example, is a huge benefit because, of course, the physical, you know, everybody everybody got got on the internet um, because the phys- physical um, meeting was uh, wasn't wasn't possible. Um, but again, you can that, that 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 also leads into questions of social media addiction, of course. These companies, part of the way they've gained their such a market share, we talked about the monopolies earlier, is how they've made it. They made social media so addictive, um, and you can talk about you know positive and negative impacts. I mean, I, I, I so I, yeah, my, my general view to conclude, I think it needs a bit more of a general tweaking, but um, ultimately, um, I'm not, I'm not advocating advocating for us to go back to the dark ages. Daniel, does James have a point there? I mean. Again, with the issues of cyberbullying, th- these are things that can be dealt with by, say, you know, schools, by um, you know, public awareness campaigns. They're not really something that we should be starting to, you know, regulate. You know, you have these kind of things online and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook where you can report posts if you find them obscene, if you find them offensive. 
Um, and I think that's that's the best way to go about that. I think social media does quite well at self-regulating itself in that sense, in the sense that um, if someone posts something that offends you, they threaten you, then you can always report that post. Um, but in the realm of free speech and differing opinions, I think there is a bit of a concern. Um, I mentioned President Trump earlier. Um, I think it's quite fascinating, actually, that the, they can remove President Trump on Twitter, but they allow the Chinese Communist Party to access Twitter still, which I think is quite obscene, quite um, quite interesting double standards. You know, uh, a country which is committing genocide against a group of people, the Uyghur people, I, I don't think that's acceptable. So I think that there needs to be, you know, if, if you're going to regulate yourself in that way, you've got to have a similar set of standards of both sides of the argument. Um, and the best way, of course, to do it would be ensure due impartiality of broadcasters. Of, of tech firms, sorry. Okay. Okay, fair enough. So we've got a couple of uh, messages that have come in. I'm just going to read those out before we move on to our final question on this issue. But we've got one in from Ollie. If social media platforms are deciding on content, do they not have to be considered publishers? They want to be considered platforms. They have to treat speech equally and fairly. And they need for government authorities to determine when violence has been incited or there have been breaches of speech laws. And we have another message in from Barbara. A free speech needs some control. If the companies have the integrity, they can do it. But if they're not, the government will need to step in uh, with strong tech management. So both those messages suggesting that the government should be more involved. But again, we're looking at quite a complicated, nuanced issue. Uh, and, and, and as both of you mentioned, we're not experts on this. Um, and it seems, in fact, this, this feeds into the final question. It seems that there has not been a huge amount of global leadership on this issue. Uh, and James, I'm going to turn to you with this final question, just for a short answer, and then to Daniel as well. Can you see there being serious action on regulating internet, big tech, social media in the next few years? Um, I think I, th- I would say broadly, yes. Um, the, 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 the major the major players, you know, the blocks like the EU and um, significant countries like the US and obviously Australia. In Australia, this I think this this bill is it's got the support of the, the ruling coalition of liberals and I think the nationalists and also Labour as well. So it's a it's, it's somewhat bipartisan. Um, I don't know how successful that bill is going to be, and obviously it's receiving criticism. This 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 uh, to go to I think Ollie's question of you know shouldn't they shouldn't they be seen as publishers to some extent? Um, well, the the problem the problem is just in terms of practicality. How with with the with the amount of traffic that goes through all these social media sites, if you how, how many people would they have to employ to watch every single area of their of their platform to make sure that um, to offer how how quickly can they how quickly can a certain number of people uh, remove illicit content um, in 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 a certain period of time? And that's the concern with this Australia bill is I think how. You know, they 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 have they they're not there was there was somebody I think mentioning that it wasn't somebody arguing that it wasn't clearly defined how <clears throat> how quickly you would have to be how quickly a a a, a platform has to act um, before the time that illicit content has remained on their site is considered um, too long and then they and then and then there's potential like jail so jail punishments for that so um, obviously uh, significant consequences so I don't. Um, we don't. We'll see. Have to see how that bill uh, goes. You've got in the in in the, obviously the US. I mentioned Amy Klobuchar's bill. Um, although obviously in the US with a very slim majority in Congress, um, I'm not sure how um, how easily easy the Democrats will find it to pass. Um, 
um, uh, sweeping legislation. Um, and of course, the EU. The problem with the EU. The problem the EU has is that with with so many members, um, they have to satisfy all parties before agreeing on legislation, more or less. So it's Absolutely. it's uh, yeah. Yeah. So some real legislative hurdles. For, for so, so my, my final answer would just be: I, I think there is yes, but it's not going to be it's not going to be absolutely revolutionary. But I think you are getting to the point where public sentiment is um, against tech firms enough that it, you will see some change. Okay, um, and, and Daniel, I'm going to ask you the same question: Can you see there being serious action on regulating big tech and social media in the next few years? Um, do you know what, Theo? Possibly. Um, the reason I say that is because it's very interesting, actually, that. This isn't necessarily a left-right issue. Um, a lot of very prominent centrist figures, especially in the European Union, have come out and denounced Twitter banning Donald Trump um, from, from from the platform. Um, Angela Merkel is a good example, and Macron as well. They both raised some serious concerns about the tech industry. I think it has come back to the point I made earlier. Um, I think there'll be attempts to regulate tech, but they won't be entirely successful. The reason being... Is because we need to get the right regulation, not the not this strange arbitrary regulation where we have, you know, um, that Article 13 that you had mentioned earlier, are treating big tech like publishers, which simply does not work because then they become liable. Um, so I think there'll be attempts to regulate. Um, I'm certainly hoping that they go down a route of ensuring due impartiality of big tech firms. Um, but I, I see, I see, this, I see this being a debate for a while. And um, if we get the right, reg- right regulation, then I'll support that. Um, but for now, I think it's going to be a bit of a sticky debate. Okay, well, thank you very much, both of you, for your thoughts on that. We're going to move on to the alternative news roundup. Time to look away from the Washington Westminster News Actors and report on some of the big stories from around the world from under your nose. In Russia, police have detained more than 3,500 people, often using violent tactics as rallies broke out across the country on Saturday, despite extreme cold and police warning. The protests have been in support of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who was arrested upon return to Russia earlier this month, before his team released a video on YouTube alleging Putin as being involved in massive criminal corruption in order to build a palace in the Black Sea. He and his supporters accused the government also tried to silence him, while President Vladimir Putin has dismissed the rallies and suggested they were the work of professionally prepared provocation by Western nations. Closer to home in Essex, a charity set up by Bristol University student Ella Lambert has helped 600 refugees out of period poverty over the last year. During lockdown, Ms Lambert began donating homemade sanitary pads to refugees in Greece and Lebanon. Now 150 volunteers have sewn and donated 2,500 reusable pads to refugees across the region who, Ms Lambert reports, haven't used random tissue paper, cardboard, socks, scraps of material and even leaves, whatever they can get hold of. Each refugee receives four pads that can be washed and reused for five years. Jim Haynes, an American Scottish socialite in Paris, famous for opening his doors to dinner guests every Saturday evening for over four decades, has died. Mr Haynes had welcomed perhaps 150,000 guests to his home in Paris's 14th arrondissement since starting in the 1970s. All he had to do was phone up beforehand and provide a donation. He had met John Lennon, David Bowie, kick-started the Fringe Festival, and was even visited by policemen after he started creating his own world passports. Said his son of his death, his goal from early on was to introduce the whole world to each other. He almost succeeded. 
Now on to our second debate topic. Former Prime Minister Gordon Brown has warned the union is running a serious risk of failure, with people in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland feeling like they're being treated as second-class citizens. They're invisible and forgotten. At forthcoming Scottish elections, the SNP are likely to increase their majority, strengthening calls for a second independence referendum, although the government and Prime Minister Boris Johnson maintained that a second referendum will not be needed. This is not an issue going away any time soon. Daniel, let's open with the big question here. There was a Scottish referendum in 2014. The Union won. Should there be a second referendum? Uh, quite simply, Theo, no. Um, these votes are a once-in-a-generation issue. They are an issue about our constitution, and they shouldn't just be taken up just because a few opinion polls show a swing to supporting to leave the Union. Um, and I... I'd like to stress that with the EU referendum, um, the last referendum we had in Europe was in 1975 when we voted to join the European Economic Community. Um, and that was a more than 40-year gap between the two referendums. I think that's a generational gap. I don't think it's acceptable that Nicola Sturgeon can be now promoting these ideas of, of independence when we only had a referendum um, about six years ago. And I really do think that instead of publishing 11-point plans about independence... Nicola Sturgeon should really focus on the domestic issues at hand in Scotland. Should really focus on getting a handle of the pandemic. Um, we've seen in Scotland only 34% in the latest data of their over 80s are actually vaccinated, compared to a UK average of 80%. This is madness. She's focusing so much on this gl- glorified um, grandeur of, a, of, of independence and not focusing on what the people really need right now during a global pandemic. So, um, no ambiguity there, for, uh, I think it's fair to say. Um, so we've had the vote in 2014, you're saying, Daniel, that was a once-in-generation vote, we should not have a second so soon in the style of the two European Union referendums. James, how much would you would you agree with that? I'm a bit mixed on this issue, and personally, to clarify, um, I, I, I do think it would be a terrible shame if Scotland left the Union. Um, but... Um, I, I, I do have, I do have to say I am somewhat sympathetic um, to people calling somewhat sympathetic to people calling for um, uh, a second indie ref because you know obviously and the main talking point um, is the is 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 of course the Scotland support for uh, the remain in the EU referendum I don't think I could in good faith go 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 on this topic without mentioning that you know the um, and I feel like a lot of Scottish people feel like the terms have changed on that since since that first independence referendum. Um, you know, they, they obviously six years ago, um, two years before the referendum, um, and, I, I, and I think it's before, there was also before the um, the point when David Cameron promised a, a Brexit referendum. Um, so at that point, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I think, I think most Scottish people weren't expecting. Um, I don't think any most people really were expecting the UK to be leaving the the EU anytime soon, even if they did want it to happen. I think it was a, a anticipated event. Um, so obviously, I think it's fairly valid for um, a lot of Scottish people to be um, who who if, if if they do support Remain. And of course, Scotland was uh, had a had a fairly fairly hefty majority. I don't know, and I have the figures in front of me of people who supported the Remain vote. Um, they feel like their term has changed. The terms have changed on that on that first referendum, and thus a second referendum would be valid. Um, and of course, like you know, it, it, the, the the problem the problem here is that for for both sides of the debate is that there is no set time limit, uh, agreed time limit on how long 
on, on what what gap you should have for a referendum of of, of this nature. Uh, so Daniel said forty forty years is an acceptable time, but I mean, you know, there is there is no objective way of of setting forty years, thirty years, twenty years, fifty years. Uh, you know, there, 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 obviously obviously there has to be a certain period of time in general. Um, so you're not just constantly flip flopping around, um, but you know there, there 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 is there is there is the issue of um, there's also yeah you have this concern of whether whether that first referendum is 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 still valid now that um, now that the now that such a significant change um, has come over the entire country. I may may I have so, so kind of uh, yeah, may, yeah sorry yeah. Um, well, the, the the forty years kind of idea is just based on the only precedent we really have for referendums. Um, b- both sides of the campaign said that this the Scottish independence vote would be a, a once in a generation vote, and to me, the only precedent we have, the precedent we have for once in a generation kind of vote, was the EEC to the um, European twenty sixteen referendum. That's that's all we really have to kind of say what generation could be around that forty years time frame, and I, I've. Like I said, I, I think that um, that the fact that we voted to leave the European Union, I don't think that changes anything to do with the debate. Because back in 2014, um, we knew that um, David Cameron was pledging um, to hold a referendum on European um, membership, European Union membership after the after the EU elections um, because of the resurgence of UKIP. And he said, "If I won a majority, I would host a referendum on European membership." Um, so the Scottish people knew that they had that information at hand. They knew there would be a referendum. And that they knew that there was a chance that the country would vote leave. And just because the country's voted leave, just because Scotland voted remain, doesn't change the fact that um, there should be another referendum now just because we've left. Remember, they voted to stay part of the union, and then we voted as part of a union. Um, do we do we also think that um, London should go independent because they voted to remain as well? I think I think it sets a very bizarre precedent if, if Scotland says we, we voted remain so we should stay in the EU, um, when the vote was taken as should the United Kingdom um, leave or remain in the European Union, and that was the main question that was at hand. So I don't think it changes much at all. Okay, so I feel like we can go back and forth on, on did the EU referendum change the goalposts or not. So I'm going to look a little bit deeper on this, um, and I appreciate it's a slightly off the cuff question. Looking more towards the history of the Union, if you set aside the two world wars, what is there holding the Union together? Is there very much kind of national sentiment, uh, a sense of a story of the United Kingdom? That, that we can appeal to in order to um, put forward a case for the union, or, or, or do the you know who has the better claim? Do the does the SNP have a better vision of an alternative independent Scotland, or do the unionists have uh, a better vision, a better narrative of a united kingdom? You know which which side story is more persuasive? Dan, I feel like you might have something to say on that. Do you mind if I come to you first? Um, yes, certainly. Um... Well, I think um, I'm a strong believer that the United Kingdom is, is much stronger together. Um, if Scotland went independent, it would risk the United Kingdom's seat on the UN Security Council, likely, because we would be a, more of a diminished power, because Scotland is still an important part of our economy. But I'd just like to just bring some figures up about um, Scotland and their grandeur for independence. So in the 29-2020 fiscal year, the, the Sc- Scottish tax revenue was 66 billion. So they took in 66 billion from their own taxes. Okay. And that includes the North Sea oil revenue as well. Um, they actually received 81 billion in public spending from the United Kingdom government so to the English central Westminster government. Um, so if they were to go independent, 
they would have a de- deficit to GDP ratio of 10%. This would be the highest in the entire European Union. Um, and the closest, the second highest, would be Romania, which is a deficit to GDP ratio of 4.2%. I do not see how um, uh, independent Scotland could ever sustain itself financially um, with that massive um, deficit to GDP ratio. They'd either have to engage in massive tax increases, which would lead to a lot of uh, capital flight and a lot of the talents in Scotland moving away to England, or they'd have to engage in austerity, which they always seem to hype about, yet they receive much more from Westminster than they actually receive in taxes themselves. Um, and I, and I, I, I do strongly believe that Scotland will be a stronger, more prosperous country um, being inside the UK. They can't have run an independent currency because if they made them an independent currency, it would be debased. It wouldn't have the same standing as the, um, as the pound sterling. So the value of that currency would be essentially a flop. It would be like a country leaving the eurozone now. It wouldn't exactly um, work that well because the currency is not based on any, on any precedent. So I, 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 do, I do strongly believe that... Um, that, the United, that, that Scotland is much stronger in the UK and that um, it should remain in the UK for economic reasons, for jobs, for prosperity. And they have to remember that they may talk about being part of the European Union, but their largest internal market is being part of the UK. Um, it's the most essential market to them. And if they left, if, if they tried to, if, 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 they, if they left the UK and tried to rejoin the EU, then there'll be, a, there'll be a harmful border between Scotland and England, which I don't think is in anyone's interest. And I find it very peculiar in a way that um, Nicola Sturgeon talks about independence that Scotland will be a free country well there's, there's two issues to that the first one is they hype the idea of keeping the pound so I mentioned independent currency earlier the issues of that um, but they mentioned the idea of keeping the pound but if they kept the pound if we let them keep the pound they'd be tied into a monetary union with us and as we've seen with the European Union if you're tied into a monetary union, that means every fiscal and monetary decision must be approved by the UK government, centrally. Danny, this is an impressive array of information, but I'm going to ask you to move towards wrapping it up so we can move on to James, otherwise this will be a rather one-sided discussion, if that's all right. Sorry. Oh, sorry, of course, of course, yeah. So, yes, um, with, with the, with the, um, with the um, currency itself, they would be, they'd, they'd have no um, independence over that. And if they actually joined the EU, they'd have less independence. They wouldn't have control of their fishing waters. They wouldn't have control of their own laws because they'd be back under the jurisdiction of the European courts. So I, I, I find their argument for independence rather perplexing. Okay, so, so James, we've got a lot of economic indicators from Daniel um, suggesting that Scotland basically it, it would be it would be a bad move to leave the union. Um, would, going back to the original question of, 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 of the narrative, would you say that, that, that Scotland um, has a narrative, uh, or you know, we can deal with the economic if you'd rather, but, but looking at those two factors, the narrative and the economic, do you think Scotland has a persuasive case in either selling itself as an independent nation rather than being part of the union, or it could do better by itself? Would you agree with kind of the Scottish view on either of those? Well... Um, as, as I mentioned uh, previously, I'm, I am I am not. Uh, I, 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 I have to happen to agree. I think Scotland would be better off within the union. I do think it would be a shame um, if it left the union. And I, but also, I'd like to, I'd like to just point out. But I'm sure that um, somebody who who is um, wholeheartedly in um, in support of um, Scottish independence could make a far better um, argument than me. Um, so yeah, don't don't take it. Don't take. Um, don't take this as a, as a comprehensive debate over this thing. I I I, I happen to I, I agree with, with quite a bit of what Dan Daniel's saying. Um, you know, you they're, they're, I, th- I think a lot a lot of their um, a lot of they, 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 I think Scotland also repeat um, received 
uh, some investment from the EU whilst they are part of the EU. Um, um, I, if, the, 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 the idea, they, I think you have to, they have to, you have to, one part which hasn't been discussed yet, and this is actually, I'm almost arguing Daniel's point for him here, but um, the, the one part which we have to actually consider is the, the idea that often when, when Scotland, when, when there's an idea of Scottish referendum, Scottish independence, sorry, um, the, the idea that they would join the EU is sort of almost taken for granted, they would rejoin. Um, and of course, each country has to, has, every country within the EU has a veto on who joins. And you do have, you, for example, there's a, there's a question of uh, of Spain, and of course, Spain's got their own concern of Catalonia of, of a of of a separatist movement within their country. Um, you've got so 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 you have to you have to you have to wonder if 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 there wouldn't be a a the risk that's for Scotland that Spain might not accept um, Scotland's reapplication to join the the European Union. Um, um, in, 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 because of the precedent that might set for their own internal struggles, um, so that is a worry. And you know, if, if Scotland's economic vision um, post independence, if that if, a, if a, that did happen, um, they, you have to consider the possibility that they might not actually manage to make it back into the EU. So overall, I'd, you know, I, I can't I can't argue about the economic stuff. I'm not qualified. I haven't done the research in that area. But culturally, I, I, I will I will I will say culturally that. You said about historically, you know, what, 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 how much precedent there is for the union. Well, of course, you've got the the geographical um, press, you know, you've got the geographical proximity. Um, yeah, and and but I mean, the the, the thing is about um, the idea of the union. How what makes people British? You've got the language, you've got language, you've got English is is is, is commonly spoken. But I think whether whether Scottish people are culturally British, that completely comes down to who you are. So I feel like a lot of Scottish people have the idea that. It, there's the, the English people consider themselves sometimes um, they they say England or British and the, and it's it's almost interchangeable. Um, whereas um, you know, whereas in Scotland and also I guess, I also I, I guess you could say Wales um, and Northern Ireland's a whole different kettle of fish. I don't want to generalise um, that 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 they 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 would feel a lot more distinct. Um, and uh, there is there is I think you can definitely say that. Um, <clears throat> uh, with 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 uh, with the capital being uh, in England and with England having the vast majority of the population, you could say that, that you know there's there's a lot more of the 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 the, the, um, the United Kingdom is a lot more um, English dominated. So that's, that's kind of it's kind of you, it's, it's quite it's quite obvious and yeah, I, I think a fair degree of you know resentment. I think that would be one of the main reasons why, and I don't know if we've got time or the knowledge, none of us are Scottish, of course, to, to discuss this, but I think one of the serious, while there is a lot of economic um, concerns with, uh, with, with leaving the Union, there's also a lot of economic concerns leaving the European Union, but, but people brought into the narrative of taking back control and were happy to, to consider those warnings incorrect or irrelevant or just say that it was worth taking back sovereignty. And I wonder if we've not considered very strongly the fact that actually Scotland's history is one of proud Scottish independence, then England's meddling and tying it back into England's problems, and then about 200 years of suppression, re- revolution, um, brutality, um, a brief heyday past the British Empire, and then economic decline again. So can a few short-term, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it would be short-term, can a few short-term economic concerns override what is a very proud and independent history? And I think that's something that on another show, another day, 
we would spend more time discussing, but we're going to have to move on, finish off this topic with with one last question. Um, but but it's worth considering the strength of an emotional narrative, um, which seems to be the flaw of, of of politicians in the last few elections and referendums, um, is that the emotional narrative holds a huge amount of power. Um, we know the prime minister is against a second referendum. This is clear. He quite steadfastly, um, Boris Johnson has come out very openly and said there's no chance for another referendum and um, james what steps and i'm gonna to have to ask you to be fairly succinct um what step do you, you think johnson need to take to keep the union together to, to tamp down this move towards scottish independence i would say that a large part of of um of that would come down to how well um they can con- the, 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 the the government can continue to deal with uh, coronavirus and obviously brexit um, I think that yeah, it, it, that 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 call that, that that discontent leading to an independence referendum will will I think to some extent hinge upon um, the government the, the government's successes in those two key areas uh, in our future. But also, uh, I, I I would just just think generally that 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 I don't think he has to, to do a huge amount in really in 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 in, in just in practical in a sense because uh, I do think that the chances of a Scottish uh, independence referendum, an official one. Um, are slim currently, um, but yeah, I, I, I yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there. I need to keep it, keep it succinct. So yeah, <laughs> but that was very succinct. Thank you. Uh, and, and Daniel, I'm going to ask you the same question. What does what need to happen to if, if, if for Johnson in order to pull the union, as it were? I think he just needs to keep making the positive cases for being part of the union. And if we're keeping this very brief, I'd like to leave this topic on just one simple message. I sincerely hope that Nicola Sturgeon focuses more on the domestic priorities of Scottish people than promoting this bizarre separatist agenda, which is now a question for future generations and not a question for now in the midst of a pandemic. Thank you. Yeah, dude. Well, you're, you're pulling your punches there. I, I, I hope you're not going to leave it on that ambig- ambiguous note. Um, but we're going to move on to the, the, the third and final topic. Very, we always have a quick uh, offbeat topic to finish. Footballers have come under some flack recently for celebrating goals, victories with hugs and physical contact, handshakes, whatever. The Premier League's asked them to stop. The FA, I think, has asked them to stop. But apart from James Madison's celebration for Leicester the other week, they've not really stopped. Um James, should we ask, should we require footballers and athletes, um, including rugby as well, Six Nations is on the horizon, um, I think, um, should we ask footballers and athletes to, to stop celebrating on the pitch using social distancing? I uh, know, stop celebrating on the pitch with social contact. Yeah, um, I, I'd say broadly, just generally, yes. Um, I think they, 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 they have a, they have a, um, a role as role models. Um, you know, even even if, of course, there's um, there's not much. Um, you know, they they're already they're already I think COVID tested. You know, there's not a huge amount of, of risk generally from the inherently from what they're doing to themselves. They are setting some kind of precedent. Um, and I you know I, I I play for the American football team at Lancaster. I know I know all about wanting to be able to celebrate um, when you you know it, it's that, that that that's completely understandable. Um, I mean. But with 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 the uh, with 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 the FA and the uh, um, as, as Arsenal to stop, I think it's it's just, this won't be a situation forever. This isn't a permanent thing. Um, I don't think it's a huge amount to ask, frankly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And, uh, and Daniel, how much would you agree? 
I think it's one of those things where it just it's it's where just a PR campaign. It's not really scientifically backed. They are being in the Premier. I know for a fact the Premier League tests their all their players and staff twice weekly. And you know, in any football game, when there's a corner kick or a free kick, there's going to be you know you know when they're building walls around the, the goals, you know, to, to to prevent the ball going into the net. There's there's um, there's no social distance in there. So I, I, I do not see the, the reason why they can't be they can't be hugging or celebrating after scoring a goal. The matches can be quite intense. So I think that it's perfectly acceptable. They're tested twice weekly. All those are positive have to isolate. There's no there's virtually insignificant risk from COVID nineteen to them because of their because of the regular testing. If we could do the same thing for the whole population, we wouldn't need a lockdown. If we could test everyone as much as they test players in Premier League, there'd be no need for a lockdown because we'd know who's got COVID all the time. Um so there's no real um, risk in terms of COVID. It's just a bit of a PR stunt, really, a bit of a way to say, um, oh, they're trying to behave as everyone else is. But there's no... It, it, banning it would make no difference to the spread of COVID because they're tested twice weekly and would just be a, a waste of um, kind of political capital and a waste of a, a waste of time, in my opinion. I think it should be like... Just, just, just to briefly, kind of, I think it is... I, absolutely, it's, it's purely symbolic. Um uh, this 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 thing it's not it's not I, I'm not I'm accepting there's not really any um, real increased risk um, but I mean if if I feel like if if the um, if the Premier League and the FA are asking it to stop it's not it's not a hill that I would personally die on but also I, I definitely see a point and it is nice to finish on some on some consensus um, we'll call it there for today we're coming to the end of our program today it's been a pleasure having you on james and daniel thank you so much you've been brilliant guests i've really enjoyed discussion really enjoyed listening to some differing opinions and i hope you guys listening at home have as well i hope you enjoyed this episode of newspeak where we've been free to speak going live um eagle eared regular listeners will notice we had a conservative party conservative society member on today but no one from the labor party because they're not answering my messages so we have tried to get balance um if if anyone from the labor party is listening um or if anyone knows anyone in the labor party on camp please ask them to respond to my messages um, because they've seen them and they've ignored them and it's a bit annoying so I would love to have a little bit of um, bi-party uh, debate on here but at the moment that is not possible but... I'm Theo, so would I I'd love to debate Labour Society <laughs> <laughs> well uh, that, that, we'd love to hear that enthusiasm um, but yeah thank you Daniel thank you James you've both been uh, wonderful and, and, and James Cade quite short notice so I appreciate that I've been Theo Hunt we'll be back the same time next week um All that remains is to wish you a lovely afternoon and we will play you out, as always, with the same um, of my favourite songs, Good Goodbye by Linkin Park. Have a great evening. So say goodbye.